Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers went detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him with brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. I'll invite Jean to do the second reading. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of these, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Ananias sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. My name's Josh, and uh, Andrew West, who's normally pastor here, is on leave, so I guess you got the B team today. A um, bit about myself. This is my second time being here at 10.30, but I'm normally at the 5.30 here in this building, and uh, I guess we look up to you guys and think maybe we could be this one day. Um, so I'm married to Sarah. We've got two kids, Eleanor and Josiah, and it's a delight to be here with you to open the Bible. Let's pray as we look at this passage together. Father, thank you that you are living and active, that your word is 
sharper than a double-edged sword. And we pray that today as we listen to it, that you might penetrate, open our hearts so that we may receive it with faith and with obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've had that experience where you watch a movie or read a book or see something in politics and you have your, your take on it and you tell someone about it and they might say to you, well, I like your take. That's an interesting interpretation. And maybe they agree, maybe they disagree, but that's the way that they respond to you. I, I like your interpretation. And it doesn't really matter in our culture today if the author intended it or not. What really matters is you as the viewer, as the reader, if you interpret it your way, that's all that matters. Uh, That's kind of the world that we live in. But it is interesting, um, as we come to an account like this, John chapter 18, in the lead up to the cross, uh, if you share this with someone and say this is what this says, this is what happens in John 18, they might say, well, that's an interesting interpretation, that's an interesting view, Uh, I don't necessarily share it, or they might say, you know, I have a different reading of this. But with other things in life, it's interesting that we don't get to do that, do we? Uh, A couple of years ago, I got a speeding fine when I was in Canberra, and they sent me the letter, and I tried to appeal it. I wrote them back a letter saying, I've got a different interpretation of what happened. And they wrote back and saying, well, we reject your interpretation. Um, Just recently, a couple of Fridays ago, when I got a positive COVID test, don't worry, I'm free now, I'm out of ISO, um, no symptoms. But when I got that test result, I couldn't just text the health department back and say, uh, I have a different interpretation of, of this. It, it doesn't work. Or think about that little girl who was lost in Tasmania recently. For two days and two nights, she was lost and then miraculously found by the rescuers. Imagine going to her parents and saying, I actually have a different view of what took place there. I have a different interpretation. It's just insane to think you could say that. So not every interpretation has the same weight or value, does it? Not all interpretations are equal. Not all of them are reasonable or valid or true. So ultimately, we don't need just someone's interpretation. What we need here as we uh, study this passage together today, we need the reality. We need the, the events. We need the facts, the history, the truth. The question is, how do we actually know what the centre of Jesus' ministry and mission is? How could we even know that? What are we looking for? Because different Christians even read this passage that we've read today or read the Bible and and come up with different ideas. Some people read it and say, well, I think Jesus' mission is all about healing people. And so that's what they do. Or some people read it and say, I think Jesus' mission is all about seeking leadership and embodying the kind of values that Jesus had in in leadership. Or some people think, I think Jesus' ministry is really just about inspiring people with interesting teaching, and it doesn't matter quite what you teach as long as you take the spirit of kind of what Jesus is on about. Are those things what Jesus' mission is? How would we know? 
Is it just a matter of my view versus your view? Well, what we really need to see is how John, the author of this account of Jesus' life, puts things to us. John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writing scripture, writing this account of Jesus' life and ministry for us. John is often called in the Gospels the disciple Jesus loved. He was uh, one of the 12 apostles. He was part of the inner three of Peter, James, and John. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. And uh, he tells us what Jesus' mission is all about. You might know that in John's Gospel, uh, the first 11 chapters cover the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And then from chapter 12, the book slows down. And for the next number of chapters through to 19, we have the final week of Jesus' ministry. And that's what we're coming into today in chapter 18, just towards the end of that section. And something really important happens in chapter 12. Both the Jews and the Greeks are chasing after Jesus. They're trying to follow him. And the Jewish leaders recognize this and they say, the whole world is going after this man. The whole world. And they're very jealous about that. And throughout the gospel, there's this phrase, my hour or Jesus' hour. And we're told multiple times, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour has not yet come. But in chapter 12, something amazing happens in verse 23. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour, his moment, the central part of his mission, what he's all about, has now come in chapter 12 as he leads up to his death on the cross. And Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about what's coming. He predicts his betrayal by Judas. He predicts uh, his denial from Peter. Uh, he tells us about his coming death and his resurrection and his glorification and of the Holy Spirit. He tells us, uh, he actually prays for himself. He prays for the disciples. He prays for all believers through all time for us. And as he leads up to all of this, Jesus says, the hour has come. So I want to ask you today, would you actually say that about the cross? Or do you have a different view of what Jesus' mission is all about? What do you think Jesus' mission is? What is the heart of it? Because Jesus tells us that his hour is the cross and all that leads up to it. Well, the passage tells us three things uh, about this hour and the center of Jesus' mission. The first thing it tells us is that Jesus is fulfilling his father's plan. He's fulfilling his father's plan. In John's gospel, Jesus is shown to be the divine son of God. He's not just a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than that. He's not just a teacher. He is a teacher, but he's more than that. He's not just an inspiring person. He is the divine son of God. He's the word who was with God in the beginning before the creation of the world. He's the word who was made flesh. He has this intimate relationship with the Father as God, not as two different gods or two different faces or masks of God, but as the one God uh, in different persons, and each person is fully God. And Jesus, at this point, stretches beyond the capacity of our minds to fully comprehend, and yet we do understand what he shows us 
But that's what we'd expect of God, isn't it? To stretch the capacity of our minds in who, who he is. Here in John 18, Jesus so clearly is seen as the divine son fulfilling the plan of God the Father. He goes to this familiar garden. This is a place that he'd been before with his disciples and Judas knows about the place, we're told. And he is doing this, not a mistake. It's not an accident. This is completely intentional. Notice verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen... Jesus knows what's, what's taking place here. And he is intentionally going about all of these events to fulfill his father's plan. He's not a shady guy in a park with a gang at night time. He is, it, this, what is happening here is bigger than the biggest business deal you could ever imagine. Think about the biggest business deal, maybe with Apple or with Facebook or with Amazon or one of these big companies. How much money would a deal that they make cost? It would be huge. It would benefit and change so many people's lives. But what's happening in this part of the gospel is infinitely bigger than something like that. In fact, it dwarfs a business deal like that. Because what Jesus is doing here in this garden of Gethsemane is undoing the mess that happened in the first garden. The mess when humanity said no to God and turned their backs on him. Jesus is uh, restoring relationship between people and God. That's what he's about to do. This mob comes along with lights, with weapons, with sinister intent, and Jesus initiates a conversation with them. Again, see, who's on the front foot here? It's not the mob. They're not in control. Jesus comes forward to them and addresses them and says, what do you want? And this, this scene might look like something out of a gangster movie or the Breaking Bad TV show or something, but... This is an instrument. What is happening here is an instrument in the hands of the sovereign God, achieving his purposes through his son. God is like the divine orchestra conductor, and this is a dark moment in the piece, but he is turning it into a masterpiece. See verse 4. Who is it you want, Jesus says. And as Jesus asks this question, it's like he's giving them rope to put around their own necks and they take the bait and put it around their neck because they incriminate themselves by telling him who they're after and as they tell him they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth he says amazingly in verse 5 I am he and Jesus is answering he's saying this is me but he's more than that he's using the name that God used in the Old Testament the exclusive name that God used, that God revealed himself to Moses with. And the reality of the name that Jesus has is so powerful that he does not need violence. He doesn't need human power structures. He doesn't need swords because they fall over at this name. This is the name of the living God. People can't stand in the presence of this one Jesus asks them again who they want, giving them more rope. And again, they take it and put it around their necks and they answer that they want Jesus. 
and he tells them that he's the one. And Peter jumps forward, he strikes a man called Malchus with his sword. And as an original reader, you could have gone and found Malchus, you could have found his family, his friends, and asked them, what happened? What happened in the garden with Jesus? But I really want you to see this sentence in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We don't get to define what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. That's not up to us. We don't bring our interpretation, our spin, our take on the events. He tells us what's happening. He is the divine son fulfilling God the Father's plan. That's what's going on here. He's in obedience to the sovereign plan of God. Imagine sitting with J.K. Rowling and reading the Harry Potter books with her right beside you. And as you finish, it'd be a long time sitting together, but um, <laughs> as you finish, she says, what, what do you think it's all about? And you say, well, I think Harry's the guy. Now, even if you're not familiar with the book, you probably know that Harry's not the bad guy, he's the good guy. And what's she going to say to that? That's a really interesting take. I like your, your view on that. No, she's going to say, you missed it, you missed the point. And it's the same as we read the gospel account. We don't get to just make up what we want it to be. Jesus is fulfilling his father's plan. We see it so clearly on the pages of the gospel. The world religions might differ, people might differ, even Christians may claim that it says different things. But the Apostle John, by the influence of the Spirit, one of his closest disciples to Jesus, tells us what it means. And today, the Holy Spirit is given to us that as we sit and read this account, the author is with us so that we might know means. But we do need more details than this, don't we? Because what does it mean that Jesus fulfills his father's plan? What does that really mean? What is the father's plan? How is the cross at the center of Jesus's mission? Well, secondly, Jesus drinks the cup. Jesus drinks the cup. We've already read the verse, but let's read 11 again. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The key question here is, what is this cup? What is Jesus talking about? And if you go back in the Old Testament, you see that the cup he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath. You can see that in Psalm 60, in Psalm 75, in Isaiah 51, in Jeremiah 25. All of those passages speak about this cup of God's wrath. And Jesus tells us the Father has given him this cup to drink. It's not that Jesus went and found it somewhere. It's not that the, the disciples gave it to him. It's that the Father himself gave this cup to Jesus. The great dilemma of the whole Bible story is being resolved right here. That the holy God, the creator God who loves his creation wants to dwell with his people but he can't because of the break in relationship because of our hearts that turn away from him and God has to do something about our hearts 
he, he, he has to, it's a matter of justice. If he's going to let sinful people come into his presence and be his friends, something has to happen about the ways we've offended him. God, God can't just leave that to the side. He can't just brush it under the carpet. He needs to respond to the constant warring, the constant indifference, the constant evil that is in the human heart. The lies, the betrayal, the, the blasphemy, the hatred, the cold-heartedness of the human race has to have a response from God. How could God just ignore that? But the agreement that God makes to figure this out is not in the first place with us. Do you notice that? The agreement God makes is between the Son and the Father in the first place. Yes, we're involved, but in the first place, it's the Son and the Father both on board with this plan, both going about this plan, and Jesus agrees and willingly takes this cup of the Father's wrath. So in himself, God becomes the plaintiff, the judge, and the criminal all at once. It's as if God actually closes the door to us for a moment, steps out of view, and says, I'm going to sort this out. In the person of Jesus, I'm going to work out my wrath. And Jesus goes there willingly. And then God opens the door to us again, and he says, I've done it. My wrath has been sorted and the plan has been completed. Jesus has fulfilled his hour. He's fulfilled the whole reason he came to this world. How about it? Will you take the gift? Will you take the invitation? Take the offer that my wrath can be done away with, that it's no more, that you don't have to deal with it, that you do not need to meet me as the judge, but you can meet me as your father in heaven? That's what's taking place here. It's like if you can imagine a young apprentice working with his father and the father says, get rid of this oil that I've drained from a car. Customer doesn't need to deal with that. And so the apprentice takes it and he discards it in the appropriate way and it's never spoken of or seen again for that customer. That's what Jesus does for his people. He does away with God's wrath for those who would receive this gift. This is why he's going to the cross. And why does he do it? It's out of love for us and for all disciples. Earlier in the gospel in chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This act of love, of self-sacrifice, comes from the very heartbeat of love from Jesus, our Saviour. How do you know if you've understood this? And I think sometimes people can be around this for a long time but not really get it. How do you know if you've understood this? Let me ask you this question. Do you see Jesus as mainly your example to follow? So when you read the Bible, you think, I need to do that, I need to be more like him, more gracious, more kind. Or do you see him, first and foremost, as your rescuer, your saviour? Because, yes, he is our example. That's 100% true. But first, he needs to be 
our rescuer and our saviour. And if he's not your rescuer and your saviour, if you have not yet put your trust in him, don't worry about following his example. You first need to have him as your saviour, the one who rescues you from the wrath of God. When I was surfing some years ago uh, down the south coast on an unpatrolled beach, I heard this screaming from the beach and saw this woman flailing her arms and screaming at the water and I saw these two boys floating out into deeper water. I thought, oh, this is my moment. I'm on a surfboard at an unpatrolled beach. (laughs) And so I paddled to them and managed to get them on the board and back safely to the shore. So, yes, I guess I am a hero, if you're wondering. (laughs) Uh, But... Imagine if I'd come up to those boys beside them and said, you guys need to be more like me. You need to follow my example. You should have brought a surfboard and you should be safely on the sandbar if, if you're swimming. That would be so unhelpful. <laughs> when you're in trouble, you need a rescuer, not an example to follow. And in our sin under the judgment of God, we need Jesus as the one who drinks the cup for us. Do you see him that way? Have you come to him and put your trust in him as the one who takes the wrath of God for you? Augustine, the church father, uh, once said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. And we could say it this way, our hearts are restless until they rest in Jesus' death for us. Until they take his wrath-bearing death as the place of safety. That's the only way in the end to know that you're safe with God for eternity if you've trusted the death of Jesus for you. That's the only way to know that you've gone out from under the judgment of God to be one of God's friends if you've put your trust in Jesus who went in your place. It's the only way to know the love of God There's a great formula uh, that's this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you say Jesus plus anything, it equals nothing. So that's for those of you who like maths. Uh, We never graduate beyond the cross. There's no small print with this deal. God doesn't say, yeah, but what about that thing in your life? No, no. The foot of the cross is a very level ground and we all come to God as sinners equally broken and God gives us relationship with him free of charge because of his son's work. The cross is the centre of Jesus' mission as he's following his father's plan, as he drinks this cup. And the third thing we see here is that the cross proves Jesus' words are true. In chapter 13, Jesus promised that he would be betrayed by one of his disciples. And why did he promise this? He tells us back in chapter 13, verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. The cross and the events leading up to it prove that all the words Jesus has spoken are true because they keep coming true in this account. And they keep proving that this man is who he says he is and that what he said he would do, he will do. He says in 
John chapter 18, verse 20, when he's on trial, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And they do know what he said, and they wrote it down for us. And Jesus' words are proven true. And it's not like Jesus just had good EQ and he could guess, oh, Judas is a, is a bad egg and, and Peter's, he's just weak. And, you know, it's not j- Jesus just guessed it. He promised that these things were going to happen. This is part of the plan. He even promised that the rooster would crow after Peter's denial. People try to interpret these events through modern narratives sometimes, liberation narrative or a revolution narrative or a conservatism narrative or a moralism narrative. But if you do that, you will miss Jesus' mission and the account of God dealing with his own wrath. It's what theologians have called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, that Jesus came and took the penalty for us. Substitutionary, that Jesus stood in our place rather than us. And atonement, because Jesus offers us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But above all else, the main way that we, we tend to get Jesus wrong, is we just think, we read it and we think, is this reasonable? Does this fit with what I think? We just read it through our own experience, through our own sense of what is normal and appropriate. And maybe subtly, you know, we make Jesus more like us as we read him. And you know what happens when we do that? Jesus shrinks down and he becomes very small. If I was up at Govett's Leap in the Blue Mountains, looking out down into the huge Gross Valley and the big sheer sandstone cliffs and the waterfalls and that spectacular view, and then my wife handed me her glasses, and she has a very specific prescription. If I put those on, the view would become narrow, it would become blurry and small. The lens would actually kill the view. When we read Jesus through our experience or, 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 or through other storylines, we make him very small. We need to see him as he is, as he's presented to us by the Apostle John here today. This is the only way to understand what his mission is all about. Because, you know, notice where we are in the story. If we try to insert ourselves and our ideas into it, do you know where we are in the story? We're like the other people. Judas is treasonous. The mob of the religious leaders are aggressive. Peter is violent and weak-willed. The disciples are absent. The accusers of Peter are suspicious. And the is part of the corrupt system. So if you want to bring the human element to Jesus' story and read him through your own experience, well, that's where we are in the story. As we read this account of the disciple that Jesus loved from John, he gives us the unadulterated view of Jesus, the beautiful, the magnificent view of Jesus. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us God's interpretation of events, which is the true interpretation of events because they are God's events. This is God's plan, God's story, God's account, God's mission. 
John 3.16 puts it so clearly, and we've already read it for the kids' talk. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When we see Jesus' mission as it's shown to us here, the view could not be larger, friends. It could not be more amazing, more spectacular, more life-transforming, more breathtaking. And if this is Jesus' mission, when we grasp it, when we trust it, it will be at the centre of our life as well. And then we can be daily conformed to the one who followed his father's plan to the cross to drink the cup, who took on his hour, his moment for our sake, and he'll receive eternal praise and glory for what he's done. Let's pray. Actually, before we bow our heads, we actually have a prayer today on the screen, which we're going to pray together. This is a prayer of confession of our sins, knowing that God is gracious and forgives us if we come to him with faith. Let's pray. Father eternal, giver of light and grace, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in what we have thought, in what we have said and done, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We have wounded your love and marred your image in us. We are sorry and ashamed and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light.